beloveds it's another beautiful week in hell congratulations on surviving and welcome back to the only podcast that is 100 scientifically guaranteed to make life worth living tales of taboo my name is ali weiss i am a downtown new york z-list host writer performer and all-around professional conversationalist literally, who is obsessed with all people, experiences, careers, and ideas outside the bounds of what society considers traditionally acceptable or accessible or quote-unquote normal. Each week, I invite my audience and their friends and their friends of friends to share their unconventional life stories behind the shield of complete anonymity. And the result of this is half investigative journalism and half fluffy, raunchy, rowdy daytime TV. And I guarantee it is unlike anything else you have heard in this sonic space. Very excited about today's episode because we are talking about plastic surgery. Let me start by saying that I strongly believe Everybody has the right to look exactly the way they want to all the time, regardless of how they accomplish it. Like if the way that God made you, contrary to what Lady Gaga preaches in Born This Way, is not up to your discerning standards, then by all means, you should do something about it. Like if you think that that um, quote unquote human Kendall who always shows up on the Daily Mail is like really on to something, hell yeah. If you want your skin to be so tight and shiny that you look like a a made-up corpse at an open-casket funeral, that is also genuinely okay with me. Or even if you just don't like your Jewish nose, you don't like that your nose immediately gives away your Judaism on your otherwise ethnically ambiguous face, like, rock out with your cock out. And that applies to both ladies and gentlemen. I myself have never gotten any plastic surgery procedures, but that's only because I haven't felt as though I needed them. But when there comes a time in my life where I feel like an element of my physical appearance is holding me back from being the best version of myself, then yeah, I'm going to do something about it. Life is short and we only get one life. And I personally don't want to waste any time not maximizing it and living it to the fullest because I'm fixated on some sort of like physical defect that I have. But I wanted to make an episode that is not about me or really even about you. I I wanted to talk more about the role of plastic surgery in society. On the one hand, it's becoming more normalized, which is awesome. And that's not awesome because getting your face and body altered should like be considered as commonplace as going for a cup of coffee. But just because anything that reduces the amount of shame we're all encouraged to feel, that's a good thing. However, on the other hand, this normalization and the increased amount of like talk and imagery that we've seen about plastic surgery on social media has led a lot of people, especially women, to believe that they need to look a certain way to be seen as beautiful or to become popular. And this is the worst part, to satisfy the algorithm or all of the above. And, you know, one could totally argue that the Kardashian and 
hip hop influenced beauty standards of the past couple of years are significantly healthier and more inclusive of that deeply anorexic look that like popped off in the 2000s. But a lot of the times this newer look is deliberately artificial looking and exaggerated. You know what I'm talking about. It's it's big hips and big butt, big lips and this teeny, teeny, tiny waist. Losing insane amounts of weight or just like stuffing in a pair of boob implants is one thing, but taking it out of certain areas of your body and inserting it into others to create these unnatural dimensions is an entirely different beast. So this week, I decided to gather anonymous contributors who have gotten good, bad, and ugly procedures as well as have on-the-record conversations with three leading plastic surgeons to talk about their observations of the industry and of society and their personal motivations and also their views on the current state of beauty culture. Uh, Two of those people can be heard in the episode today and one of those interviews I'm going to put in full on YouTube when I finally get around to launching my YouTube, which I promise is coming. So as, as I created this whole episode, I kept thinking about what the best course is for positively altering beauty standards. You know, like, of course, more women in the public eye who proudly present, like, quote unquote, imperfect or untraditional appearances are amazing. So are people who own up to the plastic surgery procedures that they've had. But it's not just Hollywood and fashion that are the problem here. It's also, if not mostly, the health and wellness and weight loss and pharmaceutical and beauty industries. These huge money-making corporate gods that deliver sneaky and really effective marketing campaigns that capitalize on our insecurities. And those insecurities have been conditioned for so many years and promoted through this nonstop stream of media that we've all been exposed to. That It's unfortunately unrealistic to think that like a few feminist revolts or bravely rebellious public figures can just change it all at the drop of a hat. So unfortunately, I'm not sure that there is an answer here other than to encourage everybody listening to pay more attention to your own feelings and your own idea of what makes you feel good and and what is beautiful and less attention to how other people are living their lives. I also think it's important, and you've heard this before, but I'm going to say it again, I think it's important to remember that celebrities are really rich and therefore have the resources to get a hair and makeup team and a trainer and a dietitian or a nutritionist. And they're expected to do all of this as part of their jobs because part of their jobs is constantly being captured on photo and on video. And with that level of expectation that comes from being in the public eye like that and also from these, you know, multi-million dollar employers in the form of like movie studios, that brings a massive amount of pressure and anxiety that is not fun to deal with. 
basically, the more you start worrying about how you appear in the eyes of the public, the deeper into that rabbit hole you fall. So this is corny, but like, do your best to love yourself, whatever that requires. And ultimately, if that requires altering your appearance, then go for it. I just want to make sure, well, (laughs) I really have no control over what anybody does, but I want to make sure that my message is clear, which is to make sure that you're doing it to live your own best life and not to try to emulate another's, especially because appearances tell you absolutely nothing about what is actually happening in somebody's life. So with that, I am stepping off my soapbox, wiping my hands clean, and without further ado, this is Tales of Taboo. I had a labiaplasty when I was 19. A labiaplasty is a surgery to alter the labia minora and the labia majora, which are the folds of skin around a vulva. It's commonly known as the procedure to reduce the size of a labia minora, which are those flaps of skin closest to the vaginal opening. It falls more into cosmetic surgery versus plastic surgery. There were a few prompts that led me to have this procedure done. My labia minora, ever since I was young, felt large and dangly, and they stuck out quite a bit in my vulva. Functionality was the number one reason. My labia minora would stick out of the sides of my underwear, and this was particularly irritating throughout high school when playing sports Um, and working out as well, but also a general discomfort with wearing certain clothes like bodysuits or wearing tight jeans. I would get irritated. Um, I also felt like wiping myself after going to the bathroom took a little bit longer and toilet paper flakes would stick to them. I also think sexually, I felt like I sort of had to move them out of the way in order to have better sensations and sort of open them up and move them out of the way to get to the opening of my vagina when having sex. My interest in the labiaplasty also stemmed from a few psychological spaces. I definitely would say one reason was the appearance. I was aware that my labia looked different than what I had perceived as normal when growing up. What I perceived as normal was what I saw mostly from my mom and my sisters I noticed that their vulva didn't look like mine. I also started watching porn at a really young age. I'd say middle school, whenever the iPod touch with the internet came out. And when I was watching porn, I didn't see labia that were long and dangly like mine. I saw smaller labias, uh, more tucked. I remember always feeling self-conscious when I'd be in the bathroom with my girlfriends and we'd be being in front of each other. I was so afraid someone might happen to look and see that my vulva was weird or different. I would try to hide it by putting my hands in front of myself or quickly wiping and pulling up my underwear and pants immediately. I also was getting a bit insecure about my labia sexually. I remember with my first boyfriend, I always wanted to have the lights off when we were doing things together because I felt like my labia were weird. I didn't want him to see it. He never mentioned anything about it. My second boyfriend in high school, we were nearing the point of having sex and I hadn't had penetrative sex before and I was nervous for him to see my labia. I remember having a conversation with him about it that I felt insecure because what I had said is that I had a lot of extra skin down there. 
It seemed like he knew what I was talking about because he mentioned one of his prior girlfriends did too and said the same thing. I mean, that didn't make me feel great to hear, but it did feel a bit reassuring, like, okay, maybe I'm not the only one and maybe you guys have seen this before. We did end up having sex together, but I still preferred to keep the lights off um, or just have a movie on the TV or something for a little bit of light. For those three reasons, function, appearance, and insecurity, that really solidified my decision to make a change and get the labiaplasty procedure done. I think I talked to my mom about it and started looking up why my labia were like this. I honestly, at the time, didn't even know the names for labia. But I found out about a labiaplasty just through looking up on Google. I thought about it for maybe a year and finally decided to go forward with it. My mom recommended that I see her gynecologist. That was maybe only the third time at an OBGYN office. But I did feel comfortable talking about it. I talked to the doctor about the irritation and discomfort that I was feeling with my labia. Um, I felt comfortable about it, talking about it with him. He was understanding I didn't really know what to expect or all that would happen, but he explained the procedure that they would cut off the extra skin on the labia minora and stitch me back up to heal. My doctor was the one who mentioned wanting to keep my labia looking natural, but just removing that excess skin. So I trusted him. Actually hearing him say that he would be keeping it natural made me feel assured and okay that he knew what he was doing and would uh, make me feel and look okay. So I went forward with the surgery. I was put to sleep under anesthesia. The recovery was all right. The day I went home, I was in some pain enough to take pain medication. I definitely needed to rest and place some ice packs between my legs. There was bruising and the whole area of my vulva was very sensitive in a way that a bruise feels. I felt all right enough to go out and do things maybe two days after the procedure. I do remember walking funny, like I was holding a beach ball between my thighs, but it wasn't incredibly noticeable to others. I just felt it. I couldn't work out or exert a ton of energy for six weeks, and I believe the guidance was to avoid sexual activity for that period as well, which was fine with me because that was the last thing on my mind at the moment with all the discomfort I felt as I was healing up. If someone is considering getting a labiaplasty, I'd urge them to consider their whys around it. I have had to rectify a bit of my own inner conflict around the idea of labiaplasties. I've heard it come up in some circles around getting labiaplasties to have the perfect looking vulva or vagina, perfect being considered very small, very symmetrical labia lips, them being tucked, no dangly, excess skin. I don't think a perfect vulva exists as I grew up out of high school and college when I'd got the procedure done. I actually realized that there are so many different looking vulva that exist and it's completely normal to have large or small dangling or tucked labias. I think girls and women growing up don't get to see many vulva. No one ever told me in my health class that every vulva and labia could look different. I never saw photos of vulva unless I looked them up myself. Um, just generally think there's not a lot of vulva representation. I think our society is much more phallic. I think dick representation is everywhere. While it's not technically plastic surgery, I got lip filler at 26 years old. And this isn't something that I really wanted for a long time. I actually booked a campaign for Allergan, which is the manufacturer that makes Botox and Juvederm. 
So it was one of those things where it was a really high paying job and I was under the impression that I was actually going to be getting Botox instead of Juvederm. So I was really optimistic about it at the time. I knew that it was still possible that I would get chosen for Juvederm after the fact, but um, I didn't feel that uncomfortable with it. My lips are naturally full. However, my top lip is significantly smaller than my bottom lip naturally. So I was kind of like, mm, I would never actually pay for lip filler myself, but this seems like a cool opportunity. So I am open to it. And I was already really comfortable with Botox. I had been getting it since I was 24. So I was like, fuck it, whatever. When it comes to the procedure itself, I did not get to decide on the doctor that I was going to because I was booked for an Allergan campaign. They, they chose the doctor. I recognized his name. He was a pretty big plastic surgeon in Chicago. And I had some friends that had gone to his clinic for lip filler and Botox, but they would get it done from his nurses, like his aesthetic nurses, not from him himself because he's a plastic surgeon. So he was doing like boob jobs and stuff like that. Unfortunately, I did get botched and I still struggle with dealing with that today. Um, it's been about two and a half years now since this procedure and I'm still really upset about it. Um, luckily, I do get some residual checks from this campaign still every year. So it kind of like lessens the blow a little bit. This doctor doesn't normally do injections and I didn't realize that that would be a problem until I got there. I also didn't know that I was getting lip filler until I got to his office. So I had done the before shoot already with the company or with the client. And at the before shoot, we did a bunch of different images alluding to uh, like facial movement. You know, they want to show like before and after type of stuff. So when I get to the plastic surgeon's office, the production coordinator is there and he was kind of like separating the models up into groups. There were, there were like 10 of us in the lobby at this point. Um, the doctor's been working all day, at, like as a surgeon. And then I think after hours, once the office was closed, is when they started doing our injections. So that's when I was told that I would be getting lip filler. And I wasn't okay with that um, because my agent had emailed me the information for the shoot and the subject line was Botox shoot. So I'm under the impression that I'm getting Botox from all angles here. Now, I knew that there was still a possibility that they could change it on me, but that should have been communicated to me well before I got into the plastic surgeon's office that day. And, you know, I'm, I already did the before shoot and now I'm sitting here with the client, a bunch of people in this room and I can't say no. You, you just can't. I should have, but you just can't. You know, you blacklist yourself. Your agency's going to get mad at you. The client's going to get mad at you. You're wasting everybody's time and money, even though you're the one in the dark of what is going to happen to your face. So I get into his little chair and um, he looks tired as shit as a man who probably did surgery all day would. And mind you, it's like 7 p.m. at this point. So he's he's really had a day. Um, and I can tell that he does not give a shit about this whatsoever. There's a production coordinator in there with me at first. Then she leaves for the procedure to be done. He tells me that he's going to put half of a milliliter in my top lip, which for those of you who understand filler, that is like nothing. That's really not a lot of filler at all. It's going to make a negligible difference. So I became increasingly comfortable with the idea of, you know, what little amount of filler I'd be getting. I was like, okay, you know, I'm not going to look crazy, right? <laughs> right. So he starts numbing me up. He doesn't put numbing cream on the way that doctors normally would for this. He injected me with like a Novocaine, like I was at a dentist. And I wasn't super comfortable with that because I hate that shit. Um, but yeah, he injects me with that, right? Like all in my lip area, my upper lip area, and then starts going in with the filler. 
And he's really jamming it in there, like haphazardly. And I'm so uncomfortable and it hurts. And I'm just like not feeling good about it. And there's one area where he kind of just like has to keep going over and over and over again. So, you know, whenever we finish up and I leave and I go home, I get my aftercare and I'm really cautious about this stuff because I've gotten Botox before. So I propped myself up on a bunch of pillows, slept on the couch on my back to avoid sleeping on my face, anything like that. Didn't drink out of a straw. Like, I know what to do. I know the drill here. And I wake up at three o'clock in the morning with the my upper lip area looking like a fucking snout. I looked like a dog that ate a beehive. Like, I was a mess freaking the fuck out. I start sending photos of my face to my friends who have gotten filler. And I'm like, has this happened to you? Is this normal? I'm like Google searching. Um, Yeah, it's not normal. It's not a normal reaction. None of my friends had ever had that happen to them, even with their first experience with filler. So now I'm here like swollen to shit. The next day I have to call out of work. I worked at a restaurant, couldn't really go in, called out of work, called my agent, freaking out. And they were like, well, we'll just calm down. It'll go down, right? Okay, so I'm icing it for days. It took over a week for this thing to like start to look normal. And that's when I started to realize how bad this lip filler job was. I was covered in bumps, covered in just like bubbles on my lips. It healed terribly. I, you know, they noticed it when I went in for the after shoot, the makeup artist and the photographer both noticed how bad my lips looked. Allergan did not even use those images on their site. They had to use different images. It it was just awful. Like everybody can tell how bad it was. So I told the client that I needed to get it removed. And they were like, well, you're welcome to go into the doctor and get it removed yourself. And I was like, "Mm, why would I pay to get this dissolved when it was Like I didn't go on my own volition. Like this was a job that I am booked for and it was messed up. It was botched. So we had kind of like a back and forth and they eventually agreed um, to, you know, like let me get the lip filler dissolved on their dime. And I got a little bit of the dissolving stuff in there, which kind of helped with the really big bubble, but I still have it. I'm really insecure about my smile now. My lips look like a mess when I smile. So I don't like to take photos where I'm giving a big toothy grin anymore. I don't smile in photos at all. I'm really uncomfortable when I'm talking to people and I'm so self-conscious of this big ass bump on my lip and it definitely like messed up my quality of life um, to an extent. The procedure I got was a breast reduction procedure. I got it in 2016. I really wanted the surgery because at the time I was a classical ballet dancer and I felt that my breast size was really inhibiting me from being successful in my chosen field. I also felt that people in the non-dance world were not taking me seriously, and that's something I really desired was to be taken seriously. I also had a lot of neck and back pain, which prevented me from sleeping at night and doing so many different physical activities. It was It was really disheartening for me. I did grow up in an environment where body dysmorphia was really, really rampant. The dance world is notorious for fostering this idea that if you don't look a certain way, you will not be successful. So in turn, a lot of dancers will starve themselves or binge so that they can they can be a part of the company they want to be in, or they can be accepted to the academy they want to go to, or even just get a role that they want. At the end of 2016, just after I had gone under the knife, I was diagnosed with 
body dysmorphia and I was treated for that. And I really thought that women who had larger chests would really never be taken seriously. And that came from experience. I could be wearing the most conservative clothing available and would still get catcalled and stared at and people would make inappropriate comments about my body. I think that my mom in particular had some trauma in her past that caused her to push some of her own body image issues onto me. I think that once I came around, she wanted to make sure that I didn't experience the same heartache she had. And I believe that she wasn't fully aware of her own body image issues. And because of that, instead of seeking help and seeking therapy, she made sure that I looked a certain way and made sure that I fit in so that nobody could ever poke fun at me. And I I really do think that came from a place of protection. I wasn't comfortable with people looking at me and assuming they knew anything about me. I think people at certain points in time would look at me and see a fairly slim girl with really large breasts. I think that men would oftentimes take that to mean that I was sexually promiscuous for whatever reason. That made me really uncomfortable. That's not the type of attention I wanted. My recovery process was super complicated. I woke up from surgery, noticed that I couldn't feel the bottom half of my body, mentioned it and was told accurately that that's a side effect of the anesthesia. Uh, So I went home and over the next day or two, I felt really, really sick. I was told by my doctors that, you know, I needed to hang in there. It was just the anesthesia. So I did that and it got worse and worse. And I was in and out of the ER for days at a time. And finally, I was able to see a specialist and he informed me that while I had my epidural, they had mistakenly punctured a very small uh, hole in the casing of my spinal column. And I was leaking a bit of spinal fluid which was making me extremely dizzy. I had the worst headache of my life. I was vomiting profusely. I could not keep food down. It was really unbearable, and that is coming from someone who has a very high pain tolerance. I went back into my surgeon, and he suggested another procedure called a blood patch, which I went through, and that's where they extract blood from their patient. They drill a small tube into the site where the puncture wound in the spinal column is and they insert the blood they had harvested prior with the hopes that it will scab up over the puncture wound. So that happened to me and after that I was not able to get up from the bed for 10 days straight and that means that I was completely flat so no pillows, nothing looking straight up at the ceiling for 10 days straight because they didn't want me moving around um, because they were afraid that the scab that formed would dislodge and that I would have to go through this procedure all over again. So while that was really rough, I was excited to feel better and I did feel better after the 10 days. In fact, I was then able to take some of my bandages off and was so incredibly proud and excited and just happy with the procedure. I thought that I looked great. My body felt completely different. I was able to sleep on my side and on my stomach and I could jump and run and do all these things that I couldn't do before. So I I felt wonderful. 
I kind of rode that high for a while and then it hit me that my body dysmorphia was not gone. There was only one part of my body that I had, quote, fixed. Then I found myself focusing on other parts of my body that I hadn't before. I think that changing my appearance changed my life in a couple of ways. The first, obviously, being that I wasn't in any physical pain anymore. But secondly, um, I felt that I could go into social settings and not feel that I was a sexual object. I felt I could go into interviews and be taken seriously as someone with something to offer rather than someone that was sexy to look at. After I had really sort of sat and thought about the way this has impacted my psyche, I actually kind of fell into a bit of a depression because it hit me that my procedure's success was proof that people were, in fact, more interested in the way I looked rather than what I had to offer or what I had to say. And that still makes me sad to this day. So I was 16 years old when I got my nose job. This was something that I had always wanted. I'm Jewish. I was born with a big nose. I had also broken my nose a couple of times over the years, but this was something I always wanted. And it was always on the table for me from a very young age. I remember I was probably a freshman in high school and I was out to dinner with my mom. And she told me I could get one before I went into college. Obviously, I got it at 16, a little bit younger. And that was because a basketball hit me in the face and ended up making it that I couldn't breathe through my nostrils. So it was just kind of like, all right, I guess it's happening now. I was never really bullied. I mean, there were definitely comments made from like little asshole boys in middle school about my nose, but it was definitely just my biggest insecurity and I felt really good about everything else about me. Surgery was common. I didn't know this until after mine, but my dad had a nose job. My mom had a nose job when I was, you know, maybe 11 years old. And so, you know, runs in the family. I think both my grandmothers had nose jobs too. My mom was always obsessed with her appearance growing up. She had an eating disorder, you know. I was 13 years old and I was skinny and I was wearing her clothes. So that was definitely like, I could see how obsessed she was. She got her nose job and like, I guess that probably impacted my own obsession with it. Body image issues were pretty rampant in my hometown. I know a lot of girls that had eating disorders and that were getting cosmetic surgery. I would say the procedure did lead to me finding myself more beautiful, but at the same time, it also led to my other insecurities kind of coming out because my nose had always been my biggest insecurity, but then suddenly it wasn't. And I was looking at all of my other features now and kind of, you know, oh, what am I going to focus on now? And I found that it has made it that I'm much more critical of other things that I always loved about myself. Like, are my eyes too small? My lips too small? Just little things that used to not bother me at all. My whole thought on plastic surgery I would recommend it if it's something that's going to make you feel better. 
don't do it for other people, do it for yourself. I have zero regrets for my nose job because of how deep-seated my insecurity was. And I knew it was something that was going to make me feel better about myself. I received a rhinoplasty and a septoplasty when I was 21. Um, And then I did get a revision rhinoplasty about five months ago. This surgery has been something that I've wanted since I would say I was in middle school. Um, That was when I first realized that my nose was much larger than all of my friends and that I really didn't like the way my face looked in pictures and in selfies. And I really started to get insecure about the way that I looked. My nose insecurities really became a deep-rooted issue later on in high school when I began to compete in beauty pageants. And I also was doing theater and some acting in my area. This was the first time I had ever been compared to other women, um, you know, mainly for my looks. And I realized the women that were winning and the women that were pursuing careers and getting the roles in these fields um, all had much smaller noses than I did and small features in general. Um, So I never thought that I could you know, be as pretty as them and be as beautiful and be as successful as they were because I did have such a big nose. I've always been decently confident in the way that I've looked. I felt on a certain scale, I was pretty, um, but I never thought that until I got a smaller nose, I could be considered gorgeous or hot, you know, or beautiful for that matter. There was one incident in high school where a boy made fun of the size of my nose. Um, Every time I would walk in the classroom, he would put his hands over his nose like a beak and he would make quacking noises. Um, He would call me bird nose and everyone at his table would laugh at me. Um, And this was really the first time that another person had brought to my attention how big my nose was. Um, And that really made it a real issue for me that it wasn't just something that I was insecure about, but that other people were noticing. And it made me believe then that everyone viewed me um, as having a big nose and looked down on me for it. I was told up front that when getting a rhinoplasty, you don't see the final end result um, until you're between year one and three post-op. So it's a very long recovery process, but the worst of it was within the first month and definitely the first week. First seven days, I had a cast on, I had tubing in my nostrils to hold the bone in place and a gauze taped underneath my nose to catch any blood coming out. But eventually the blood did harden inside my nostrils and I couldn't breathe out my nose. I would have to get a mouth moisturizing spray so I wouldn't get cotton mouth when I would sleep at night. The space between your upper lip and your nose is completely numb from the nerves being severed. So eating was really difficult. I would cry, but I couldn't move my face to actually cry. So tears would just stream out of my eyes, at least until the pain meds kicked in. And even then I was still in a lot of discomfort. After I got my cast off and the tubes out, The pain really did subside and I could wane myself off the pain medication, but I had bruising underneath both of my eyes and around my mouth and my nose that lasted for about a month. So going out in public with two really big black eyes isn't fun or something that I looked forward to. At around a year and eight months, I spoke with my surgeon about concerns for my nose still looking really puffy and feeling like there was a lot of swelling present and he agreed. So 
I decided that I needed to go back for a revision surgery and he agreed with me. We decided that we were going to remove a lot of the scar tissue, remove a lot of the swelling, and actually my nose had healed lopsided, so one side was bigger than the other. Recovering from my revision surgery was 10 times easier than my first procedure. Um, I didn't have a cast or tubing in my nose, and I really didn't even need pain medication past the first week of my surgery. Um, and I don't believe that any of it was my doctor's fault. Um, I am pretty prone to holding on to swelling for long periods of time in general. Um, and that is something that, you know, I knew was a risk going into the surgery. Um, and it is a risk for a lot of people that I don't think that they think about when getting a nose job. I am five months post-op from my revision surgery and I can still feel some scar tissue swelling. Um, my nose is still extremely hard, but I can genuinely say that I noticed such a huge difference in the size of my nose being so much smaller and looking just so much better. I can honestly say I'm so confident in the way that I look now and I'm so much happier. Um, I really don't nitpick the way that I look in pictures anymore. And I am so happy with the result. And I feel like this just impacted my life so positively. So I've always, always, always gained attention and approval for looking young. It first really began in college. That's when I began to notice it. I was getting attention from older men, particularly men who were in relationships nearing their 40s. And they would treat me like I was some sort of anomaly. They'd say I didn't look quote unquote worn down. That me looking so innocent was sexy. Um, it made me so different from women my age. And I always felt like this level of pride when I would reveal to someone my age and they would gasp in shock. It's like I was perceiving it as some sort of accomplishment that I had worked towards rather than just some sort of genetic gift that I had. Now, in particular, I got attention from agents. So when I was in college, we'd have these agents come in and basically give advice to the graduates. And one of the things that I was told was that it was a good thing I looked so young because it would increase my chances of getting representation. Reps love young looking women who are over 18 because there's more movie parts out there for young looking women than there are women nearing their 30s. So as I got older and I graduated and I began nearing my late 20s, I realized that I was really not receiving any attention from agents or reps or casting directors. I hadn't been cast in anything. I felt like I was missing out and I was losing time and that the only way I could have control over my future was making sure I stayed as young looking as possible. One day, an acting coach told me that I looked like I was in my early 30s. I was mortified. I thought, that's it. Oh my gosh, my youth is over. I am no longer going to receive attention from reps or men. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? So I went in the mirror, inspected my face, saw that I had some severe dark under eye circles because I was struggling with insomnia and immediately booked an appointment with um, a physician's assistant. I had already been getting Botox from this woman for a few months, so I decided to go with her because I liked her results and I thought they looked really natural from what I could see on her Instagram. Now, everyone on Google was basically saying, all over Reddit and the like, was saying, 
don't go with a physician's assistant. Like you should go to a doctor or a surgeon. And when I got there, it was just such a different experience than what I had in the past with her. I felt like she was really cold. She was very much like urging me to get filler in different places that I hadn't requested. Like I explained I wanted under eye filler and then she started suggesting other places I could get it as well because since I'd paid for the whole syringe, I quote unquote may as well just use it since I was paying for it. So of course, you know, being in the vulnerable position I already was in, um, I said yes to the other places she suggested I get filler. So at the end of the appointment, I walked out with under eye filler, mid cheek filler, nasolabial filler, and some filler that was also in the dent in my chin. There was so much about filler that I didn't know I didn't know. For example, I had no idea that when the cannula goes into your skin, that it's not just going in the top layer of your skin, it's actually going underneath your muscle to the bone. And I didn't know that you'd hear a sharp popping noise. That was really alarming to hear and feel while I was getting it. I learned later that getting under eye and nasal label filler is actually not recommended, like at all. I learned that filler can move in your face. I consequentially learned that filler swells when you have salty foods and when you drink a lot of water, when you exercise, when you're in extreme temperatures, that you can get nodules and inflammation. I actually got really bad sinus infections for months after because my injector injected too close to my sinuses. It changes the way my face feels. I can feel it under my skin. It's like these hard nodules. It feels, especially where my um, nasolabial folds are, it feels like this like hard snake. I also don't put any blame on my injector at the end of the day, although I do believe she could have been more transparent and I don't think it was appropriate that she show me different areas of my face that I supposedly needed filler. I still walked into that room as a grown woman and decided to make the choice on my own accord. I was lucky enough to have on-the-record conversations with various prominent surgeons in the industry. To start us off, here's a clip from Dr. Stuart Linder, who's based in Beverly Hills, California. Dr. Linder breaks down what procedures he speculates Kim Kardashian to have had and the often undiscussed health risks that come with them. I'm really happy that you brought that up. I was actually going to ask you to break down the procedures that you either know or believe the Kardashians to have had. Um, That model of beauty, you know, in the 90s up until the mid 2000s, we had the kind of ultra thin wayfish look and then the Kardashians came in and it became, you know, the curvier, the better. Um, But I still think that there's a little bit of confusion as to what exactly they had done. And the term BBL has been thrown around a lot, but I don't know that everybody knows exactly how a BBL works. So would it be okay to kind of break down like what procedures you believe them to have had and and exactly what a BBL is? As a disclaimer, she's not my patient and therefore uh, there's no HIPAA confidentiality because I have not operated on her. But most consistent she's had breast augmentation probably had more than one operation her sizes have changed over the years she's had children as well which means she's probably ended up having skin laxity on her breast which may have required her to get a breast lift i don't know but it wouldn't be i wouldn't be surprised if she's had revision breast augmentations and possibly a lift having had a couple of children breastfeeding secondarily we all know she's, she, I think, I don't know, she's maybe mentioned she's had liposuction. And uh, she's probably had lipo of her abdomen, her flanks, her hips. And the fat was then transferred 
to the buttock area, and that's referred to as a BBL. Brazilian butt lift is most commonly injection of fat, your own fat, autologous fat grafting, into the superficial fatty layers of the buttock in order to enlarge the size of the butt. She's probably also had contouring of her thighs, liposuction of the inner outer thighs, possibly inner knees. And then facial plastic surgery. I'm sure she's had rejuvenation in the face, including Botox, Juvederm. She may have had fat grafting of her different areas of her face, cheeks, malar eminence. I don't know if she's had any eyelid surgery. It's always possible. But, you know, when you look at their before and afters, and you see the stunning differences, it's usually associated with Botox and facial fillers. And you mentioned that there are some really scary downsides to BBL and that women die from it. Um, I didn't quite get all the medical <laughs> terms that you had listed, um, but could you kind of break down what some of those risks are? Okay, the, the BBL's procedure were basically fat, simply transfer, it's called fat transfer. It's your own fat. It's usually lipo from your stomach, your hips, your flanks, your thighs. The fat is centrifuged. You remove the fluid, you keep the, uh, the fat itself, which is cleansed and cleaned, so you have pretty pure fat. And then in syringes, with a small needle, you're injecting the fat into the buttock area. It's not rocket science. You have to know where to inject it. You want to stay superficial. If you go too deep, like into the muscle, that fat that you're injecting can actually go into a vein. If it gets into the gluteal vein, it can end up in the vena cava and end up in the lung. And that's what's referred to as a pulmonary embolus. If you get a pulmonary embolus of fat into the lung, it can knock off the lung, it can kill the lung, it can end up with an infarction, and you can end up dying. So pulmonary emboli are very, very dangerous, extremely dangerous. And from the BBLs, you know, there have been many incident reports of death due to the fat transfer the fat traveling into the deep veins, into the vena cava, up to the lungs, and leading to a pulmonary embolus, which can lead to death if not treated immediately. That's terrifying, and that's also something that <clears throat> no one is really talking about. Next, I have a long-form conversation with Dr. Tony Yoon, who's based in Detroit. Aside from being brilliant, Dr. Yoon has a great personality and 7.6 million TikTok followers. So I thought he'd be the perfect person to talk about the current state of surgery in society, amongst many other things. Do you find that in your region, your clients seem to be as influenced by Instagram and social media as a whole as um, women tend to do in more coastal areas? Yeah, so I actually spent a year uh, uh, at the beginning of my career out in Beverly Hills in a big time Beverly Hills plastic surgery office. And yes, the patients over there are very different than the patients that I see here yeah. in Michigan. I mean, there are some similarities, you know, you have um, a lot of, I mean, really, you know, here what I see are a lot of um, teachers, nurses, doctors, lawyers, engineers, and the spouses of people who are doing those. Uh, who come in for things that they want to get done. Out in California, we saw a lot of the same thing, but we would also see actors and actresses. We would see models. We would see 
Hollywood producers and directors. And then there's some of the more odd jobs that I don't see as much here. Yeah. I remember one of my patients out in Beverly Hills uh, was a hand and foot model. Oh, that's like, incredible. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, no, but this, that, that, was okay. just her, that was just a job she told us initially about. And when she came in for surgery, she said, hey, Dr. Yoon, I need to tell you what I really do. And I said, well, what is that? She goes, I sell used women's underwear on eBay. And I thought, are you kidding me? Yeah. She actually made the bulk of her money going to different like yard sales and stuff and buying used underwear and literally reselling it on eBay. It was, I mean, it So it wasn't even her underwear. It was on other oh. people's underwear that she was buying at like yard and consignment sales. Yeah. And she <laughs> made so much money selling that, that she was paying for all this cosmetic surgery from a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon. So yeah, it's, and, and I haven't seen that here in Detroit yet. I mean, maybe there are some of them, but I haven't seen it here. Or maybe they're not so forthcoming about it. You know, maybe there's possible. a little bit more subtlety. Wow. That's hilarious and incredible. And, um, you know, talk about feminist entrepreneurship, selling other hey. women's underwear to fund how you want to look. Hey, you know what? It's a, it's an honest living and if people will pay for it and hey, it's a great entrepreneurial gig, I guess, for her. So she was happy and a really nice, nice woman. And, um, and then, you know, she did her hand and foot modeling too, but where the real money was. was yes. Other people's underwear. Yes. <laughs> That's so good. Um, do you have any clients or, or potentially want to be clients that don't become clients who come into your office and ask for procedures that you don't believe that they need? Um, obviously, okay. I know that that's subjective, but you know, people who ask for nose jobs but have perfect noses, people who are in amazing shape and ask for tummy tucks, like that kind of thing. I, I'm very interested to hear how you handle situations like that, because I do know that plastic surgeons are kind of half aesthetic surgeons and half psychologists, right? So yeah, what do you psychiatrists do when that with happens? Knives. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I turn down about one in every five people who come to see me. Yeah. And um, quite often it's because of just what you said, it's kind of unrealistic expectations. There's this idea that they uh, want to improve themselves or quote unquote improve themselves. And I may look at them and say, geez, there's like nothing that I can do that is going to be worthwhile here. Um, and, you know, and, and there are those people who come in and they've got real issues that, you know, some people may say, oh, I'd live with that. That's no big deal. Like, let's say somebody has had a couple of children, they've got some extra skin of their tummy and they don't like it. And, you know, some people may look at it and say, geez, I barely notice it. But when they bend over, they see that that tummy skin wrinkling um, much more than ever did before. And they want to have something done to get rid of it. Well, sometimes what can happen is there's so much skin that, you know, it's worthwhile. Okay, let's go ahead and do it. We'll do a tummy tuck. That skin's really overhanging. It's shaping. And hey, let's let's get rid of it for you. But then there are those people where you look at and you go, look, for us to do a tummy tuck, it's a three-hour operation. You get a long scar that goes from hip to hip, a scar around your belly button. That trade-off is just not worth it. And so in those patients, sometimes there just isn't much you can offer them because the non-surgical skin tightening treatments aren't gonna do it. They're not powerful enough. And surgery sometimes can be too much. And so some patients find themselves in kind of this in-between of like, it's bad enough that I don't like it, but not so bad that there's a, an operation for it. Yeah. So there's that group, but then there's also the group where you consider body dysmorphia. And studies show that upwards of 1%, up to maybe two to 3% of plastic surgery patients have body dysmorphia. Wow. And depending on the surgery, if you look at rhinoplasty, nose job surgery, it could be upwards of 10%. 
And that is a psychiatric or psychological condition where somebody looks in the mirror and what they see in the mirror is different than reality. You know, so you or I, we may have a little bump on our nose and we look in the mirror and go, yeah, we have a little bump on our nose, no big deal. But to somebody with bi-dysmorphia, that bump is the size of a golf ball. Yeah. And they can't understand why everybody else doesn't think that they're hideous from it. And so because that's their reality, they go see plastic surgeons and eventually find somebody who's going to operate on their nose. And because it was never a true, you know, quote unquote deformity to start with, a lot of them will go down this kind of slippery slope of surgery after surgery after surgery to correct a perceived deformity that was never really there. So it can go anything wow. from like, once again, somebody who just has an issue that, you know, is something that we can see, but not so bad that surgery is really necessary to somebody who truly has real body dysmorphia. And are you in a place as their doctor to say, I don't think you need this procedure? Oh yeah. I say that all the time. Yeah. And, and it's met with different reactions. Some people, you know, the, the challenge of it is, especially in today's day and age of social media, you know, and, and when I've got the following that I have, um, you know, what you don't want is for somebody to, to go public and say, oh, you know, you made me feel bad because sometimes saying no to somebody, it upsets them. Yeah. You know, they feel if you say no, that maybe you're not taking them seriously enough. And some people take it personally even though you or I may look at it and say, oh, he's trying to do the right thing. This, you know, there's no reason why she should undergo a surgery that can be potentially dangerous. Sometimes the patients look at it in a different way and they may look at it as he's not taking me seriously. He's brushing me off, you know, and, and the concern is, is they can go public and say, you know what, he's, you know, he doesn't have any feelings and he hurt my feelings and this and that. And, and therein lies the challenge is, you know, when you have somebody, a patient who maybe you disagree with, how do you communicate with them? respectfully so that you both leave the encounter, you know, feeling okay about it. Yeah. And furthermore, do you see patients or again, wannabe patients who are under the impression that getting a particular plastic surgery procedure is going to heal like some sort of deeply rooted trauma or psychological upset? Because, you know, I think that we collectively can't deny that there is a certain power that comes with beauty and there's a certain power that comes with our perceived idea of ideal beauty. But I also do think that a lot of people, especially women, fall under the impression that looking perfect is going to make them happy. And so body dysmorphia is one thing, but do you ever see patients who, you know, are perhaps suffering from depression or feel like they're at a standstill in their life and they think that having bigger boobs or having a perfect nose is is going to give them a fairy tale life? Yeah, that happens all the time. And, and therein lies a challenge. When we talk to patients about these operations, there are certain red flags that sometimes that will come out that, um, you know, that will trigger me into stepping back and saying, okay, is this really the right thing to do? Uh, so for example, just like you said, if somebody says, oh, I'm just, you know, you get a sense that they're not a happy person, that there's something going on in their life and they feel that this is what's going to change their life around and turn it around. It could be as simple as what you mentioned, you know, with somebody who has maybe some, has had poor self-esteem for a long time. And they think, oh, if I just get those breast implants, I'm going to feel good about myself. And then on this flip side, you also have um, patients and, and typically women who are once again, most of my patients who may be in relationships where their relationship is not healthy. Mm. And they think, well, if I just get bigger breasts, my husband's going to love me more. Mm. Or, and sometimes it's internalized. Sometimes, uh, you know, oftentimes the husband has like, I never said to do that. Um, but then there are some spouses that will say, 
geez, you know, after having babies, look at your tummy. Uh, you need to get something done because I'm not attracted to you anymore. Yeah. And it's just, it's very, very difficult. And I feel for, I feel for women in our society because, you know, our society in general is not kind to women, you know, whether they're young, but especially after they have children, their bodies change, it's just not kind. And there's so much, um, there's, there is so much pressure on women to look good um, when they when their bodies go through so many changes, you know, with having children, with going through menopause and, and, and the normal changes of a female body, um, that, that is tough. And, and I think as a plastic surgeon, there's always that part of me that wonders, you know, am I feeding into that to an extent, or am I trying to help people get through that in as healthy of a way as possible? You yeah. know, it's easy just to say, well, you should feel good about who you are, but you know, you got to walk in those shoes first. I'm glad that you brought that up because something I'm marinating on quite frequently is how there's this rhetoric happening now about the need for radical self-acceptance and the changing definition of what is beautiful and how to change beauty standards all over the world, but especially in America. But this rhetoric is happening simultaneously to the you know, continuous increase of social media usage, especially yeah. post-pandemic. And within the pandemic, I mean, we all spent two years glued to our screens, staring at our own reflection. And I, I'm, I ask a lot of people how they think we can fix this problem if there really is a way that we can start the domino effect of radical self-acceptance. But I think it's especially interesting to ask a plastic surgeon that because you mentioned wondering if you feed into the problem. You know, I was going to ask if you ever feel guilty and, and what you think can be done to encourage more women to, to find themselves beautiful despite potentially not looking like the examples they see in magazines and, and on Instagram. Yeah, you know, I think that you're you hit the nail on the head, and that there is something that I think that I have, you know, and you follow me on TikTok and stuff. You know that one of the things that I'm all about is um, body positivity, and whatever type of body you have, whatever type of face you have, feeling and, and knowing that you're beautiful because it's more than just having um, certain proportions of your face and of your body that match those of a Hollywood star. But at the same time, being a plastic surgeon, I also know that you know, I'm realistic and we have to be realistic in our society as well. And there are people who can practice radical self-acceptance no matter what their body looks like, no matter how they feel. But then there are also those people who may have seen their body change over the last 15 or 20 years, you know, or maybe they just never developed things that, you know, like breasts that, that they look at other women and they say, geez, you know, they feel more feminine because they have a certain breast shape or whatever, or size. Uh, it's not for me to judge them. And so I think that's where we can um, impact the discussion is radical self-acceptance, but also not judging those who are trying to, and I wouldn't say better themselves because you're not necessarily bettering your body if you have plastic surgery, but maybe trying to get themselves to the place that they want to be personally. Right. You know, and I do think that in, in general, our society is going that direction. There's not nearly the plastic surgery shaming that there may have been in the past. There's only really shaming if you get work done, obvious work done, and you don't admit to it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And we see that with, <laughs> you know, with the Kardashians. Um, but at the same time, I do think, especially what you see on social media, especially Gen Z, they're much more accepting of all different people's bodies uh, and people who may have um, challenges, you know, birth defects and things like that. You know, those, they're, 
there is, I, I think that there's a very healthy movement there. I would agree. And again, you keep bringing up these points in such a perfect order. I was going to ask you about, um, I, I hate to point fingers, but you know, Bella Hadid comes up as a really good example as somebody who's considered to be one of the most beautiful women in the world, which I, I would agree with. And she also seems like a really wonderful woman, but you can see pictures proving just how much her face has changed. And there's been radical denial of getting any work done. And there's been so much investigation, especially on social media, you know, the, the, the fox eye and the brow lift, which I would love to speak about, but more than just diving into the procedures that Bella has clearly had done. I find it so interesting that we are all collectively as an audience and as consumers hyper aware of the fact that she has gotten work done, but that has not stopped us from worshiping her and seeing her as one of the most beautiful women in the world. Kylie Jenner is another really good example of somebody who has clearly gotten so much facial work done, so much body work done. And she has even said, you know, uh, she hasn't owned up to the surgery in particular, but, you know, she got bullied a lot when she was young. She got bullied a lot as a teenager in the public eye. And she ended up getting work to appease what strangers were telling her she should look like. And then when she did that, she became an icon. She became a legend that people see as this standard of beauty. So, of course, I would like to get into what you believe these women have had done. But more than that, I would also like to know why you think we are so willing to worship what is clearly fake. What, what is that? I don't, I don't quite get it. Well, I think that, you know, whether it's fake or real, it still is that person. And um, I mean, that's still who we see and we have our own definitions of what is beautiful. Now, you know, some people think that Bella Hadid is like, you know, the most beautiful woman in the world. I would disagree with that myself, but that's my own personal preference. Um, I think what we all look at Hollywood celebrities and, and influencers as well to a maybe slightly lesser extent as um, being kind of all, almost like this, uh, these like um, holier than thou people who uh, come down to earth and we marvel at their beauty. And we <laughs> like to believe that this is that they were just made this way by God and right. that that's who they are. Um, but in the end, I think the good thing is we are being realistic with it. I don't see any problem with um you know, for us, I think uh, 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 looking up to beauty and seeing these as beauty standards, I think the issue is when people are dishonest, that makes it very difficult because the problem is, is you are now holding, you know, people will hold themselves up to a beauty standard that is just unattainable. Completely. And that therein lies the problem. At the same time, though, I do sympathize with celebrities because this is their personal medical information. And it really you know, and, and I speculate about celebrities all the time, but it, it is none of our business if they don't want it to be, whether they had a nose job or breast implants. And yes, we can speculate. And that's part of being a celebrity is you kind of open yourself up to that. Um, but, you know, at the same time, in the end, whether the person had work done or not, does it truly matter? Because this is how they look now. Yeah. So, I mean, as, and as far as like what they've had done, you know, with Bella, I haven't studied her face really extensively. The things that I've seen is it does appear probably she had a rhinoplasty, a nose job done. Uh, she may have had some eyelid work done as well. And then some filler, uh, injectable filler. I don't think she's had a, some of the stuff that a lot of people have said. Um, with Kylie Jenner, honestly, the lips are the big thing. Uh, and the lips, if you take her 
younger face and add the bigger lips, like it looks kind of like what she looks now. Yeah. I do think she may have had her nose done as well. Um, but I do think in general that people assume a lot of these celebrities have had a lot more work done than they really have. Yeah. So with Bella, I don't exactly know what it's called medically, but there's been speculation that she's had a procedure where you you insert a thread into the face and pull it. What is that called? Well, that's a thread lift, but thread lifts give results that last maybe six to 12 months and that's it. Oh, wow. Yeah, her eyes being you know kind of more, almost a little more almond shaped and a little more slanted is called a canthopexy. And so there's an operation where you can detach the outer portion of the eyelid and actually reattach it higher, kind of tightening the eyelid at the same time. It's a pretty invasive operation. And I question whether that operation is done as much as people think, because I think the vast majority of celebrities, you know, who, especially once they've already made it big, they're not going to change their face to that extent. You know, they're not going to literally have the side portion of their eyelid detached and then reattached higher by actually sticking a screw in there and poking a, a hole in the bone to actually read. I mean, it's, it's a big operation. You know, I think that we tend to try to assume that a lot of these celebrities get more done than we think, or then they may really have, because part of it honestly is it makes us feel better, Yeah. you know, to say, Oh, she's had 12 things done. She spent $2 million on her face. Well, probably not, you know, maybe yeah. some Botox has caused her brows to be lifted a bit. So that's was going to be my next question. Are there halfway procedures that aren't quite invasive surgery that can produce a certain effect? Like can Botox be used for brow lifting and, and cat eyes? Or are there lasers that can tighten and reshape your face? What's what's kind of available there? I mean, there's a lot of things available that's non-surgical. So Botox obviously being the number one thing that, you know, a lot of celebrities are doing it. Five million people in the US do it every year. Um, so Botox can reshape the eyebrows uh, and sometimes they can reshape it and make a person look real weird. You may have seen pictures of Nicole Kidman, yeah. um, Katie Couric, you know, where it just doesn't quite look right. But in the right person, you can take somebody with a relatively horizontal eyebrow and you can create a much more um, uh, dramatic arch to it. And if you've got somebody with already a dramatic arch to their eyebrow, like a Katie Couric initially, and you make it even more arch, then it looks really weird. Yeah. But if you take somebody who has maybe even a slightly droopy eyebrow and you give it a nice little arch, then it can actually look real nice. Yeah. Um, and then there are definitely a lot of facial treatments that can help just overall skin tightening. Uh, there's one that we just got recently called Morpheus 8. And this is radio frequency microneedling. It's, it's a way to tighten up the skin utilizing heat as well as tiny little pokes in the skin like you see with the derma rollers. Morpheus 8 sounds like something out of the matrix. <laughs> <laughs> is the machine really crazy? No, it's actually a small thing. It's real easy to use. Yeah. And, and it's one of the hottest kind of skin tightening, non-invasive treatments in Hollywood right now. That's good to know. I'm definitely going to research yeah. that. Um, so I'm going to wrap this up by asking you what you think that the next body or face trend might be. Because if we look back to the 90s up to the mid 2000s, that kind of wayfish supermodel look with the jutting hip bones was very popular. And then with the rise of the Kardashians, women have started desiring a curvier, more kind of heightened femininity, fuller figure. Um, I wonder if you ever speculate about you know, the concept of body trends, but also what you think the next body or face trend looks like. So I think a lot of it is going to depend on the zeitgeist of our culture, you know, and it's going to depend on 
who's creating the music that starts getting hot. It's going to depend on, um, you know, who has, who are the, some of the big new social media stars and what are their bodies like. But if you look at it from more of a plastic surgery aesthetics trend, then what I would potentially, what I would predict is going to be going more towards a athletic muscular type of a body. So the reason why I see that I say this is the first thing is that certain types of surgeries are really losing steam in the younger people and some of it with good reason. So breast implants, you know, have been huge and they still are the number one cosmetic surgery, but there are more and more people who are um, realizing that in some people implants may make them sick. And so I've been taking a lot of implants out of people. And I do wow. know a lot of people are concerned that, you know, maybe I don't want implants if they could potentially make me sick. I don't think they make the majority of people sick. I think a very small percentage may react that way, but I do believe there's that small percentage. The same goes for BBL. You know, it's getting a larger buttock. Uh, it has been shown to be to potentially be very, very dangerous in the wrong hands. So I do think that the trend now is in general is to more natural bodies. And now when you're starting to see a lot of more, a lot more fitness influencers, you know, one of the big things, uh, with the pandemic is Peloton. And I'm friends with some of the Peloton um, instructors. And, you know, there, if you look at them, their uh, audiences on social media are just exploding. And there are people who are in general, very natural. I mean, one or two of them may have breast implants, but in general, these are people who have very athletic toned muscular bodies. To me, I think that's the direction that we're going to go next. But, but that's looking at it once again, from more of the aesthetic perspective of what are the procedures coming out. And then finally, the other thing is, is one of the hottest uh, sectors in aesthetic surgery, aesthetic medicine right now are muscle stimulating devices. Mm. So these are the, these are devices that say you can put onto your abs, ab muscles and stimulate your abs to contract 20,000 times in a half hour. I'm sculpt, right? That's one of them. There's cool tone. There's um, a bunch of these, like all the laser companies now are coming out with their own version, but these are ways to stimulate muscle growth. And that's kind of that newest sector right now. I also think we're seeing a rise in um, Olympians and professional athletes doing campaigns for major brands. Yeah. I've seen that with Evian. I've seen that with Sweetgreen. I've seen that with cosmetics companies like SK2. And I don't think that we can undervalue, especially in, in the social media age and in 2022, you know, how much brand alignment really also affects what consumers want. Yeah. And I do think that that's kind of going to be the direction myself is going to be the, that athletic natural, healthy, toned body that doesn't necessarily have these ridiculous types of curves. Uh, but I mean, that's my prediction. And I'm also almost 50. <laughs> and so I may not have my finger quite on it, but I think I do. I think, I think you we'll do. <laughs> I think based on your wild success on TikTok, you actually very do, very much you know, do. The funny possible. thing is I get people ask me, how old are you? And then I put, sometimes put 25 and then people are like, wow, you look <laughs> old for 25. And they believe me. And other times I'll put like 85 and they believe that too. Like, wow, you look great for 85. Listen, I think there's a lot of power in being ageless because it means that you can, <laughs> you can swim in and out of all of these different generations and uh, report on what they want and what they do want. I think you look great. I don't think you oh, look old. You. Your skin is smooth and reflecting the light in your office perfectly. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. You look fantastic thank as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, and those of you who identify as neither, my name is Ali Weiss, and this has been Tales of Taboo. If you yourself have an anonymous confession that you feel compelled to share with me, 
can be about anything, please let me know. My email is ali at aliweisworld.com. You can also DM me on Instagram at aliweisworld. However, those DMs get clogged up real fast with castings and also with really scary love and hate mail. If you love this show, if it resonates with you, please take literally five seconds, like actually five seconds, and leave me a rating and review on any platform you're listening from, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You have the ability to do it on both platforms. And it is the only way that you can be guaranteed good karma for the next 50 years. I am really looking forward to seeing and hearing from you guys next week. As always, your time and attention and care and willingness to be open with me is the only reason that I get out of bed in the morning, not to put too much pressure on you, but it is true. So until we meet again, be good.